Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. In January of 1961, just a few days before his inauguration, President-elect John F. Kennedy decided to spend a few days relaxing at the family compound in Florida. He invited evangelist Billy Graham to join him for a round of golf. Now, that invitation surprised a lot of people because of Kennedy's well-known dislike for the famous evangelist. After they had finished playing golf, they got in the car, headed back to the compound, and Kennedy pulled the car over to the side of the road. He stopped the engine. He looked at Billy and said, Billy, do you believe Jesus Christ is coming back to earth one day? Billy said, I certainly do. Then Kennedy asked, why do I hear so little about it today? The fact that Jesus is coming back today is one of the best-kept secrets in this world and in many churches. A lot of churches don't talk about the second coming of Christ, but make no mistake about it, Jesus is coming back again one day to reclaim this world, to reward the righteous, and to judge the unrighteous. It is the most important event in human history. And yet, even among Christians who believe that Christ is coming back, there's a lot of confusion today about the second coming of Jesus and an event that happened seven years before that, the rapture of the church. And so today, as we continue our study, Are We Living in the End Times?, we're going to look at the differences between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus and what they mean to each of us who are believers. If you have your Bibles, Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's look, first of all, at the rapture of the church. We began looking at it last time. The most uh, extensive description of the rapture is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The Bible says there are four components of the rapture. First of all, the descent of Christ. The Lord descends from the heavens at the rapture. And by the way, this could happen at any moment. This event is next on God's prophetic timeline. There are no signs that have to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. It could happen next week. It could happen before we have lunch today. It could happen at any moment. When unannounced, the Lord appears and the trumpet sounds, He will descend from heaven. Secondly, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who are the dead in Christ? It is every 
believer who has died since the time the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Now, get this. When a Christian dies, he goes immediately into the presence of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. His spirit, the real part of him, goes to be with the Lord. But his body, that temporary dwelling place, Paul calls it a tent, that is put into the ground or in somebody's urn above the fireplace. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It's not the person. It's his body. It's the cocoon that's left behind. It is buried. It is disposed of. It's cremated. doesn't matter. It's the body that is left behind. And one day, that body is going to be raised, and it's going to be changed. So, Paul said, the Lord descends, the dead in Christ, all Christians' bodies are raised, and then it says, we who are alive and remain, that is, a generation of Christians who will never experience death, like Enoch and Elijah, they'll be walking one day on earth with the Lord, and they'll next day be in heaven in an instant, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. People say, well, the word rapture is something you made up. It's not in the Bible. No, it is in the Bible. That's what the word caught together, caught up together with him in the clouds. Caught up is the Greek word arpazo. It means to snatch away. The Lord descends. The bodies of dead believers are raised. We who are alive and remain, if we're alive at that time, will caught up, be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And the fourth aspect of the rapture is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. And we shall all be changed. Paul said, we're all not going to die. There'll be a generation of Christians that escape death, but we will all be changed. All of us are going to get a brand new body, a body free from the sin, the suffering, the sickness of this life, a brand new body that's meant for eternity. And it will happen, Paul said, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That is the rapture of the church. It's something that's very biblical, and it is the next event on God's prophetic timetable. Now, not all Christians agree on the timing of the rapture when it occurs. And that's all right. I think we ought to give people the freedom to be wrong. You know, to me, that's what tolerance is. You're right to be wrong. Uh, you, people have the right to be wrong about the rapture. There are some Christians who believe in what we call the post-tribulation rapture. Look on your diagram here. Instead of occurring before the tribulation, they want to move that upward error to the end of the tribulation. They believe Christians will go through that final seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. That's the post-tribulation rapture. Some Christians say, let's split the difference. We'll be mid-tribulation rapturists. That is, they believe Christians will be here for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and then they will be caught up uh, before the final three and a half years. So the post-tribulation view says it's after the tribulation. The mid-tribulation view says it's halfway in between. But there are other Christians like myself who believe the Bible proclaims a pre-tribulation uh, rapture. We will be caught up before the final seven years of earth's history. Why do I believe that so fervently? Let me give you three reasons for a pre-tribulation rapture. First of all, the promise of God. 
You know, I've had people say to me through the years, oh, you, you pre-tribulation rapturists, you're just trying to get out of this world easily. You're trying to escape all tribulation. No, not at all. Jesus made a promise to us. He said in John 16, in this world you will have what? Tribulation. Look, there is no promise of escape from suffering. There's every promise that we'll experience suffering. That's been the story of the church for 2,000 years. The church right now is suffering around the world. Christians are being executed for their faith in Christ. We've escaped that in America for a while. I don't think we'll escape it forever. But God promises we will experience the wrath of man for our faith. But ladies and gentlemen, one thing we never have to worry about is the wrath of God. See, what is unique about these final seven years of Earth's history is the world will not just experience the wrath of man, they will experience the wrath of God. And Christians have been promised exemption from the wrath of God. Think about it in the Bible. Noah escaped the wrath of God through the flood, through the ark God provided. Lot escaped the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. And believers are going to escape the great wrath of God that is poured out during the tribulation. Just jot down these scripture passages. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. Paul writes, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the what? The wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God has not destined us for what? wrath. That's not his plan for us, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that were not enough, listen to Jesus' promise in Revelation 3 verse 10, primarily to the church of Philadelphia, but to a larger audience that I think includes you and me. Jesus promised, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world. He wasn't talking about localized uh, tribulation for the church of Philadelphia. He was saying to the church at large, church, I'm going to deliver you one day from the testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So the promise of God is a promise that we will escape the wrath of God. Second reason I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture is the absence of the church in Revelation 6 through 18. Now, the church, the body of Christ, is prominent in the book of Revelation. You find it in chapters 1 through 5. In chapters 1 to 3, it's the church on earth. The book was addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you see the church in heaven. I think the rapture occurs between chapters 3 and 4 of Revelation. Because in chapter 4, suddenly the church is around the throne praising God. But then in chapter 6 of Revelation, what happens? John begins to describe the seven years of the great tribulation. He describes the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. He describes all of the things that happen to the environment, the destruction of the seas and of plant life. He describes the fire and brimstone, judgment from God. All of that is described in chapter 6 through 18. And guess what? You don't find the church mentioned one time. Now, it is strange that 
John would talk about the church in chapters 1 to 5. He talks about the church again in chapter 19 with the second coming of Christ. But he is silent about the church. Why is there no mention of the church during what is happening on the earth during the great tribulation? Easy. The church isn't here. That's why John doesn't talk about it. He looked around at everything that was happening, and there was no sign of the church anywhere. That's another strong piece of evidence for the pre-tribulation rapture. But I think the strongest evidence for the pre-tribulation rapture is the third reason, and that is the purpose of the tribulation. Why does God send this horrible judgment on the earth? There are two purposes given for the great tribulation. First of all, the salvation of Israel. Remember Daniel's clock, 490 years, 483 of them have already passed. There's one final seven-year period left on God's clock to deal with Israel. And God's primary desire for Israel is that Israel be saved. May I say right now, during the midst of this horrible atrocity that's been committed against Israel, we want to pray for Israel's physical protection, but her greatest need, Israel's greatest need is salvation through Jesus Christ. And we ought to pray for Israel, but let's pray for Israel's salvation. That's what's on the heart of God, that Israel would come to know Christ as Savior, and God will use this tribulation period to bring many Jewish people to faith. And interestingly, it will happen because of the witness of 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are saved at the beginning of the tribulation, and they're sealed, and they proclaim the gospel. Now, the purpose is the salvation of Israel. Does the church need to obtain salvation? No. The church is already saved. So there's no purpose in a tribulation producing salvation for those who already have it. The second purpose of the tribulation is the condemnation of unbelievers. This is the time in earth's history when God finally pours out his wrath on those who have rebelled against him. And guess what? The church is exempt from that punishment, that wrath. In Romans 8 verse 1, Paul said, therefore there is now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ did for us, he took the wrath, the punishment that we deserve. We sing it in that hymn, for on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He took the punishment for us. I remember reading the story about a group of cowboys who were out on a prairie when suddenly one of those prairie fires erupted and started heading toward them. They began to panic. They didn't know what to do. And one of the cowboys said, quick, let's light a fire and burn the grass around us. The other men thought he had lost his mind. Why would you start a fire around you when a fire is raging toward you? And he added, the fire cannot come where it's already been. The fire cannot come where it has already been. The fire of God's judgment has already come on Jesus Christ. And that's why I never have to fear it again. There is therefore now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's why I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Now, you see on your timeline, after the rapture of the church, then begins the great final seven years of earth's history, the period we call the Great Tribulation. Now, 
Daniel 9, 24 to 27 says, the countdown, those final seven years, begins when the Antichrist, the world leader, signs a peace treaty with Israel. We don't know how much time there is between the rapture of the church and the great tribulation beginning, that peace treaty. Isn't it interesting that the Antichrist rises to power without any force at all? He has a bow but has no arrow in it. People gladly, countries, nations gladly acquiesce to his leadership because of what he was able to do in the Middle East. The whole basis for his rise to power is something that is happening in the Middle East. It has always been the focus of history, and it will be in the end times. Now, this is just my conjecture, but I think part of the turmoil that will cause people to voluntarily turn to the Antichrist will be turmoil that is caused by the rapture of the church. Just think what will happen when millions of people, men, women, and children, suddenly disappear. They're gone. Think of the chaos that will cause in our power grid, in our government, in our transportation and food system. There will be great turmoil as people try to recover from this loss of millions and millions of lives. And I think against that turmoil is how the Antichrist rises to power. He starts with a peace treaty with Israel. The first three and a half years are relatively peaceful of the tribulation, but halfway through that seven years, Daniel says, he turns his back on Israel. He breaks the peace covenant. He instigates a war against the Jewish people and against Christians who are being converted during that time. The world forces, tired of his dictatorship, decide to try to topple the Antichrist. They meet for battle at the plain of Megiddo. Many of us have been there before. Napoleon said it's the most natural battlefield in all the world. The world forces are lined up to do battle with Antichrist when suddenly the clouds part, the trumpet sounds, and the Lord Jesus Christ appears along with his armies, which we'll see in a moment, are you and I. That's the second coming of Jesus. Let me mention four reasons why a literal, visible second com coming of Christ is important. First of all, a second coming is necessary to fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. Did you know there are 1,800 prophecies in the Old Testament about the second coming of Christ? Not the first coming at Bethlehem, 1,800 prophecies about the second coming of Christ in his kingdom. In fact, for every one prophecy about his first coming at Bethlehem, there are eight about his second coming. Uh, 25 out of 27 books in the New Testament deal with the second coming of Christ or some aspect of it. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament is about the second coming. It is the theme of the New Testament. And if, those, if Christ doesn't come back, then all of those prophecies go unfulfilled, and really you can't trust Scripture at all. Secondly, a second coming is necessary to judge unbelievers for their sin. If Christ doesn't come back, then sin and wickedness will increase and will intensify. Thirdly, Christ's second coming is necessary to depose Satan from his earthly dominion. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was right when he said, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Paul was right when he called Satan the God of this age. Satan is in 
temporary control of what is happening in this world right now. But the key word is temporary. Now, if Christ doesn't come back and topple Satan, if God simply says, you know, Satan, you wanted the earth so badly, you keep it and I'll keep heaven and we'll just stay in our own corners, do you think God's going to do that? God is lost if that happens. No, God is coming back to reclaim and remake the world that has been lost. And finally, Christ's second coming is necessary to establish God's kingdom on earth. Remember the Abrahamic covenant we looked at a couple of weeks ago? God made an unconditional, eternal promise to Abraham and his believing descendants. The promise was, first of all, I'm going to give you a land. And he outlined exactly what that land was. Today, Israel is dwelling in a part of that land, but they're not, dealing, they're not dwelling in all of the land, but one day they will. One day they will. God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants, and he said, you're going to be a nation that endures forever, and you'll live in peace with your enemies one day. Well, God's this people, the Israelites, they're in the land right now. They've been reconstituted as a nation, but are, are they at peace with their neighbors? Hardly, hardly, but one day they will be. God said to Abraham, Abraham, through one of your descendants, the entire world will be blessed. And of course, that was a reference to Jesus Christ, Paul said in Galatians 3. And Jesus did come, and he did secure salvation for those who believe. But God promised more than that. He said, one day, Messiah, the Lord Jesus, will sit on the throne of God in Jerusalem and rule the world in perfect peace and righteousness. Jesus has come, but is he ruling over the world in truth and grace? Not yet, but one day he will. And that one day is the period we call the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, when God fulfills his promise to believing Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, God has some unfinished business left on planet earth to do. And the millennium, the second coming of Christ and his kingdom are the time when God will finish his business with Israel and with the world. By the way, do you know that's what the song Joy to the World is about? Many people don't know that when Isaac Watts wrote that hymn in 1719, he didn't have Christmas in mind. It wasn't used as a Christmas carol. It was a hymn, not about the first coming of Christ so much, but about the second coming of Christ. Just look at the lyrics, the big conclusion. He rules the world in truth and grace. Is he ruling the world in truth and grace today? If he's trying, he's doing a pretty lousy job of it. No, he's not talking about the first coming. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Are the nations around the world today reflecting the righteousness of God and the wonders of his love? No, they're reflecting the rebellion, the depravity of man's heart. But one day, the nations will reflect the glory of our God. That's what joy to the world is all about. And that's why Jesus is coming back again. Now, look at the details of his second coming in Revelation 11 through 16. John says, he's picturing what is happening in the war at Armageddon. And suddenly I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white 
horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's where we get crown him with many crowns, the diadem, the crown that is the right to rule. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, not his blood, the blood of his enemies. And his name is called the Word of God. Remember John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in the linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who is this army? It's you. It's me. How do I know that? Back in verse 8, John talks about the church being clothed in white linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. That is us who will be following the Lord Jesus. And from his mouth, look at verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This is an extension of the illusion in Revelation 14, where he's trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. Remember, sinners are compared to being grapes that are bursting forth with sin, not anything good, but with sin, and they're ready to be judged by God. And then look at verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the second coming of Jesus, and it's a fulfillment of what Jude wrote in Jude 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, some Christians believe that the rapture of the church and the second coming are all the same thing. It's the same event described in a different way. And they will point out the fact that the same words in the Greek New Testament are used to describe both events, which is, by the way, true. Perusia, we translate it the appearing, the coming of our Lord, is used of both the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, and the second coming, Matthew 24.27. Apocalypsis, you know that word, the unveiling of Jesus, where Jesus is unveiled at both events. In the rapture, 1 Corinthians 1 7, at the second coming, 2 Thessalonians 1 7. And then the third Greek word, epiphania, which means manifestation. It's used of the rapture in 2 Timothy 4 8, and the second coming, 2 Thessalonians 2 8. See, people say, same word. Both events, they're the same thing. May I remind you that just because some things are similar doesn't mean they're the same. For example, my car has a motor in it. Amy's washing machine has a motor in it. No, it's my washing machine, too. I'm just throwing that in there. I'm not trying to be chauvinistic. Uh, we have a motor in our car. We have a motor in our washing machine. We have a motor in our garage door opener. But even though all three items have motors, does that make them the same? No. 
And it's the same between the rapture and the second coming. There are some similarities, but there are some major differences in the two events as well. Let me just point out nine of them, and we're going to put on our tennis shoes as we do this. Go through these nine differences, one sentence for each difference. Look at it. First of all, what's the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Many prophecies must be fulfilled prior to the second coming. However, no prophecies must be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. The second coming has to have a regathering of Israel, a building of the new temple. Lots of things have to happen before the second coming. The rapture could happen at any moment. Second, at the rapture, Christ's feet never touch the ground. Remember, we meet him in the air. But at the second coming, the Lord's feet will touch the earth. Zechariah 14.4 says when he lands on the Mount of Olives, it will split that giant mountain in two. Number three, at the rapture, Jesus returns to heaven with his believers. But at the second coming, Jesus returns to earth with believers. Number four, the rapture is a mystery that's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. But the second coming is predicted many times as we saw in the Old Testament. Number five, after the rapture, believers will be judged, evaluated at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. But after the second coming, unbelievers will be judged later at the great white throne judgment. Number six, after the rapture, there's no physical change in the earth. In fact, it gets worse throughout the tribulation. But after the second coming, part of the curse against the earth is removed. Remember, during the millennium, it's not the new heaven and new earth, but it is a renovated heaven and earth. The curse is partially removed because Satan has been bound. Number seven, after the rapture, Satan runs rampant on the earth for seven years. Imagine the field day he's going to have when all believers who are called restrainers of evil, they've been removed, 2 Thessalonians 2, and Satan is free to do whatever he wants. After the rapture, Satan runs rampant on the earth for seven years, but after the second coming, Satan is bound for a thousand years that correspond to the millennium. Number eight, the rapture will occur instantaneously. It will be at a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But the second coming will be the climax of a seven-year-long worldwide conflict. And ninth, finally, at the rapture, only believers will see the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll see him when they meet him in the air. But at the second coming, unbelievers will look on him whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12.10, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Does the second coming really make a difference? Does it really make a difference? I remember reading the story about a group of seminary students who were playing basketball after class one day. And while they played, the custodian sat in the bleachers waiting for them to finish so he could lock up the gym. And while he sat there waiting, he was reading his New Testament. When the game ended, one of the students passed by, saw him reading his Bible and said, what are you reading? The janitor said, Revelation. Oh, the student said in his most condescending way, do you understand what revelation means? He said, I sure do. It means Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to win. But it doesn't seem like he's winning right now, does he? We look at all the chaos in the world. 
We look at the heartache, the heartbreak that many Christians are feeling. This year, there'll be some, perhaps, people missing from your Christmas table who were here last year. It looks like Jesus isn't winning right now. The pain you may be feeling right now, the disappointment in God you may be experiencing is very real, but it's also very temporary. One day, Jesus is coming back again to recreate, to reclaim the world that has been lost. Remember in the book of Revelation, God gave to John a panoramic view of the future. And in Revelation 11, verse 15, John looked beyond the tribulation and saw something great that was about to happen. He says in Revelation 11:15, and the seventh angel sounded, and I heard loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen and amen.
Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Everyone is going to see Jesus one day. You'll either meet him as your Savior who welcomes you into heaven, or you'll meet him as your judge. How much better to take advantage of God's offer of forgiveness now. The only people who go to heaven are forgiven people, and that's what Christ came at his first coming to offer. He died to take the wrath of God that we deserve. Today, I don't think it's an accident. You're here. You're watching this service. God is giving you an opportunity to trust in Christ as your Savior, to know that your sins are forgiven, to be welcomed one day into God's presence. And if you'd like to receive that gift, I encourage you to pray this simple prayer with me. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know that I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you loved me so much you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take that punishment, that wrath I deserve. And today I'm trusting in what Christ did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.